Hi, I'm Jeremy Martin, and this is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast, where we highlight the strength of our city, the spirit of our people, and share your stories of compassion. Welcome back to another episode of Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker, and I have a very special guest joining us on the show today. Jeremy Martin is the founding pastor of Downtown Faith, a community of faith in the heart of downtown Las Vegas. He is married to his beautiful wife and partner in life and ministry, Martha, and they have two amazing children, Grayson and Henley. Together, his family and church community create space in downtown Las Vegas to discuss life and faith. Jeremy is the author of Build a Bigger Table, creating space to discuss life and faith, and he hosts the Downtown Faith Discussion Podcast. He has been published in Church Planter Magazine multiple times, as well as being a featured guest on their corresponding podcast, Hardcore Church Planting. Now, you can find Jeremy on Twitter at at jmart316, as well as on Instagram at jmart316. You can also follow Downtown Faith at dtlvfaith on both Twitter and Instagram. And of course, you can check them out on Facebook as well. I want to say thank you for doing your part to amplify hope and share stories of compassion. So without further ado, here is Jeremy Martin on Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I feel like you are my brother from another mother. Uh, <laughs> had such a great relationship. And to have you on my podcast now is, is really kind of full circle. You were one of the first people I connected with here in Las Vegas. And I remember doing your podcast mm-hmm. and um, ending with, I think that was awkward. There's something to that effect? Yeah. You know, when we first started the podcast, the Downtown Faith Discussion, we we thought these are going to be awkward conversations. We're going to talk to people about their faith. And for a lot of people, that wasn't a conversation they were having. Uh, we actually dropped that tagline at the end. That's how kind of how people would sign off uh, by saying it's been awkward. Because what we found was, was guests would get off and go, man, I love that. I haven't had that kind of conversation in a long time, or I've never had a conversation like that. And uh, instead of being awkward, it was actually really life-giving to guests and stuff. So we just, uh, we kind of changed that. But yes, that was back in the early days where we did um, uh, an awkward conversation about life and faith. (laughs) Nice. Well, this is going to be a compassionate conversation. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I just, I love the way that your community is structured and the things that you're doing there. So I just kind of want to dive right into it. Who are you and how do you define compassion? Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm Jeremy Martin, like I said earlier, and uh, I'm the founder and pastor of Downtown Faith, and I'm husband and father, husband to Martha, father to Grayson and Henley. And uh, I, you know, compassion is one of those very interesting things that I think that we can all relate to in one way or another. And I would define it as the compelling force that moves us from saying, we love people to showing we love people. The compelling force that moves us from saying we love people to what? Showing we love to people. Showing we love people. That is fantastic. So we're definitely going to tweet that quote out. <laughs> yeah. And I think also, I think there's a, an element to it as well that, that true compassion, like that authentic um, 
movement moves us to maybe go further with a few. Uh, uh, kind of an example of that is, you know, people, um, it looks good maybe as an organization or even as a person that I give a little money to a lot of things, right? And it shows that maybe we're, you know, we're uh, knowledgeable of a lot of things or we're into a lot of things or we uh, have a broad compassion. Um, I, I was at a church one time and they were, they were celebrating their partners and it, w- it was a small, small gathering. And so I definitely understand the financial constraints of a small gathering. And uh, they, they brought, partners um, kind of in on this certain day and they were going to give them checks and they were, they were giving this very small amount to a lot of partners. And it really struck a chord to me as before our, our community of faith had started. And I thought to myself, I, I feel like as someone who was at that time fundraising for a nonprofit, you know, $75 that maybe covered me getting here, right. As, as part of my job. Um, whereas, you know, going further with fewer, um, tends to enhance that, uh, and, and tends to be maybe even um, exponentially greater in the life of maybe that nonprofit or the organization, or even for that individual. Uh, I think that um, you know, foster parents and adoptive parents tend to to live by that and to demonstrate that, right? Like they go really far with a few and do whatever they can to change uh, that child's life or these children's lives that they have for a time. And uh, I think, you know, that's a great example of of what I mean when I say compassion, that, that, that force that moves us into action. Um, because if you, if you tell someone you love them, if you say, hey, I love you, um, people know cognitively, oh, I, I'm loved by that person. Uh, if you show someone you love them, they feel loved. And I think that's when real transformation happens. And the, the space in between is, is compassion. Yeah, that feeling loved is so important. One of the things that I try to, to teach in my, my action, in my being, is loving people the way that they can understand. It's mm. great that you and I are both having this conversation in English, but if I was speaking with someone that only spoke Spanish, while I could be giving them the secrets to the universe, if I'm not speaking mm-hmm. their language, it means nothing. So loving yeah. people in a way that they actually feel that love, I think is huge. Yeah, our our counselor um, uh, a few years ago, I would had really had like my, my edges had been very hardened uh, in ministry, and I wasn't being very compassionate towards people, and and uh, you can get into all the reasons there. But our, my counselor was really wonderful. One of the things that he said as we were uh, as um, he said, basically, you don't need counseling. Your wife needs it, which means you need counseling. But he, uh, so he brought her, her into the conversation with us. And, and uh, you know, we were talking about um, the idea of showing love, feeling love, saying your love, that kind of thing. And, and he said, who gets to decide if what the thing you did showed you love that person? Right. Who gets to make that decision? And it was a very thought provoking question because you can love someone or your intentions are loving. But if it comes across differently, right, if it's not understood that way, if it's not received that way, um, you know, how do we how do we change that? How do we alter that so that that person um, is known and cared for in the way that they need to be known and cared for? And I think that's a that's a real tricky thing at times. Um, I think people are so different and there's so many different needs. Um, and so 
knowing what people need and getting to the root of it. And as you're saying, helping them understand they're loved um, is, and it's important, but it's very difficult, <laughs> you know, uh, speaking as a, a married man, I, I don't always communicate. Uh, and I tell my wife that all the time. I was like, I don't think you know what I feel for you. I don't, I don't think I communicate that well all the time um, because if she ever feels not enough or insecure, um, it's like, well, man, I've, I've somewhere along the line, I've, I've not communicated that. And compassion moves me to figure out new ways and to create new ways to communicate that. To, to actually show that compassion. Exactly. I, I think that's exactly what we need more of. And I have a few questions about downtown faith, but you brought up something I do want to get into now. And okay. that is having that compassionate conversation with someone that you disagree with. How do you reach a place where you can actually engage in a way that you can be heard and feel like you've expressed yourself and also understand the other when you seem to be at total polar opposites of the conversation? Yeah, you know, one of the biggest things that I've discovered for me personally, and I think, I think it, from what I've seen, it, it tends to translate to others as well. I think humility is, is the big one. Um, you know, uh, in, in light of Jesus, and that, that's, that's kind of the, the spiritual tradition that I follow. And so if you look at Jesus, one of the writers in the New Testament was telling people to have the mindset of Jesus. And he was talking about this, this unifying mindset, this unity that Jesus brings us. And he says, um, it kind of gives us this formula and it breaks it down to uh, the, the unity um, requiring love, love requiring sacrifice, and sacrifice requiring humility. And so if we want to to um, engage people with whom we are vastly different, uh, which is what I think Jesus was doing, right? Like he was engaging people uh, with love that were vastly different, but ultimately it came down to this humbling, you know, it talks about Jesus humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross. And that is hugely sacrificial, but it does sacrifice and love doesn't happen. Unity doesn't happen without that starting point of humility. And that is and was and will probably always be the most difficult part for me. Um, I, I grew up in a, in a tradition that was very um, being right was most important. And, but I also remember my father telling me uh, in a, in, a relationship with a girlfriend. He said, listen, you can, you can be right or you can be in relationship. Sometimes, you know, you can, you that can try and make, yeah, you can make your point or you can make a difference. And uh, so I am trying oh, to wait, 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 say that one more time. You, you can make a point or you can make a difference. And that, I don't think that's original with me. I think that one might be uh, an Andy Stanley quote. Uh, hey, well, it, it's a great quote. But, and yeah. it, it really speaks to the heart of compassion and that showing piece. In your book, you talk about you want to have conversations, not necessarily conversions. Yes. Does that play into this here? It does. Because if I'm trying to convert anyone who's trying to convert someone is trying to prove that they are right about their worldview, their perspective, their belief system. Um, they're usually converting people to a structure of some sort. And I, I don't think Jesus was trying to convert people to Christianity. I think he was uh, passionate about helping people follow him uh, in, into a new life, a new way of being human. Uh, but I don't think he was really concerned with Christianity. As a matter of fact, there was no Christianity. There was no a, the Bible, um, 
in his time, he, he was simply following me. And, and when you're united with me, you're united with God and we're all one and his ministry was unity. And, and that's what, you know, one of the writers of the new Testament says that, that we're unified in, in not just his death, but in his resurrection to life. And I think all of that plays into um, this idea of having a conversation and sh- being being compassionate, and maybe even that conversation is the compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you when you know someone, and you begin to care for them, uh, they begin to open themselves to you and you to them. No matter what you're disagreeing about, I'm again, I'm not trying to convert you to something. I, mm-hmm. I want to get to know you, and I also believe that Jesus has a path, a way that is, that is life-giving and is good for us. Um, and I don't have to push that on anyone. Yeah. Truth, doesn't, truth doesn't have to be um, coerced and manipulated. Like it, just, it can just be presented. Um, and, and I think through those conversations, through being known and cared for, what we've found uh, in our community of faith is that people, um, when you begin to live like Jesus and speak like Jesus and listen like Jesus um, and behave like Jesus, people um, find that to be compelling. Um, and then maybe they'll follow Jesus. Again, they may never convert to Christianity, to a certain brand of that, but they begin to follow Jesus. And that to me is what, um, what is, that is the end result that is good for them. I see. So you mentioned that sometimes the conversation can actually be the compassion and action, so to speak. In this time right now where people are hurting, people mm-hmm. are afraid, things are just plain uncertain, no one knows what tomorrow holds, it kind of forces people to want to be right because for a lot of people, rightness is the same as safety. And a lot of Christian ministers in particular, but I'm sure it happens in other traditions, are saying this is the time you need to be right with God and follow our way. How can we as a community still show compassion to people that are seeking to do the right things, but are actually creating a sense of, uh, I guess, disunity where people are are not feeling included and they feel that because they don't necessarily believe in Jesus or whatever, or or they adamantly believe there is no God, whatever the case may be, their rightness. How do we have a compassionate conversation? Politics and religion are the two things that people are just, you know, I'm right and you're wrong. So how do we have that conversation? Uh, Honestly, I'll say first off, it has to me, it has to happen well in person. Uh, you know, social media, um, and, and I say in person, what we're doing right now is in person, even though it's virtually, you know, um, but I think face to face, um, is important. Uh, you know, recently there, there was a, an issue like this in downtown and I was very, um, I saw it as an opportunity to practice what we preach, what I write about in the book, um, and to take people on seemingly opposite sides of an issue that is is both political and and at times religious and um and on social media someone posted something and yeah they were gonna they were gonna boycott this thing and um because of the beliefs of this organization and and i I knew the organization and i knew the heart of the leader um of the of the local 
uh, organization. And, and so I, and I knew the heart of this person that was posting this. And so on, on social media, on Facebook, I just said, Hey, I'd love to get you in face to face in person. And let's have this conversation, right? Cause you seemingly are on polar opposites. And I actually think you're not as far apart as you think you are. And, uh, so someone commented on there, well, then you just need to say it all right here. And I, I, I just said, no, thank you. <laughs> I, I, I think this conversation needs to happen in person, um, face to face. Uh, I think it's a better way to read people's hearts and intentions. And I was able to do that to a, a, it was really a wonderful conversation and it was to a wonderful degree. And these people didn't leave both believing the same things or, um, really even having a different stand on issues, you know, uh, organizationally or anything like that. But they did leave friends. They did leave uh, hearing each other's heart. And the person that was not going to support this is now wanting to support this. I don't agree with this person and everything. And, 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 and we're going to be on different sides of the page, you know, religiously, politically, maybe even in some ways. Um, but this person who is leading this um, has a heart for me that I didn't know they had. And they have a heart for people I didn't know they had. And so the, the tune begins to change. And so I, I think less social media um, arguments and points to be made and that kind of thing and um, inflammatory, this person destroys this person, you know, uh, clickbait and more face-to-face, in-person, meaningful conversations. Because one of the things I've, I've learned is it's hard to hate up close. Yeah. Your book is called Build a Bigger Table. Yes. And that to me says, get close. It says mm-hmm. we want to have that face-to-face conversation. We want to be in the same space and sharing a meal together, build a bigger table. Where does that table work out itself on social media? I see a lot of people blocking as soon as, well, if you are voting for such and such, I'm going to block you, unfriend me right now. Where does this fit in that? Um, I, you know, so much of, um, I would say much of, of the book is about uh, moving things away from uh, technology and into to in-person, right? And uh, it's easier. We, we will do things behind the mask of social media where we can just block or we can just silence or we can just unfollow. And I've been guilty of this myself where I'll drop a grenade on someone's, you know, post and comment. And then it just, and, and it wrecks my soul to see that this, like people took what I said and they made it something else. And because that's easy to do. And, and honestly, you know, there, there's a wonderful book called Reclaiming Conversation by uh, Sherry Turkle, who works at MIT as a professor. And she works um, with a lot of students, uh, helping them to basically detach their lives from um, even just texting. She, she talks about how families have moved to having hard conversations over text because if I say it in person, I'm going to get emotional. I may say something that I don't want to. And she talks about really the damaging effects of that is you, you remove out of that what it's like to see another person um, having these thoughts and com- during this conversation and then being able to reconcile face-to-face and in person, forgiveness and grace and all these things that, that families could and should be teaching uh, in that dynamic. And it's, it's turned to um, text and not face-to-face. And you don't see the hurt in 
in the kid's eyes. And, and so she, she has a, just a wonderful, she uses a chair model rather than a table model uh, in, in her book, uh, Reclaiming Conversation, but it's wonderful. I was glad I got a hold of it right before I finished the last edit of my book because I was able to drop some ideas in there that I felt like were very helpful from her. Um, and it's a wonderful resource, I think, on anyone trying to navigate social media conversations and um, things that have, have moved um, more online or over the phone. Um, and she says that, you know, where, where our overconnectedness has actually hurt us, she believes that conversations, face-to-face conversations are the healing balm on that. And so I would say while social media is good and there's a place for it and there are good things in it that, that can enhance our society and help us see a broader perspective, I also think people tend to uh, hunker down in those situations or even um, say things they would never say in person, behave in a way they would never behave towards another person in person, hearing that person's story. So you kind of bring up two points for me. One is, do you think that we we lack compassion because we have painted over pain in a lot of cases. And then the second part of that is with the disconnection via social media, do you think that there is a place for saying what you really think, saying how you really feel? Uh, For example, with politics, people here in Nevada go to a caucus and you know exactly within your own party who they're caucusing for. But on election day, you have no idea what they're really voting for. Do you think there is some merit in knowing where people really stand? Uh, So to your first question, uh, the idea of of pain, have we painted over pain? I I would say, so the word for for compassion um, in the Greek, so we're in the New Testament when it talks about Jesus had compassion is this word splagna, which has to do with like your guts, like this idea of pouring out of your guts. And so, and, and we all know that, that the, the passion and compassion has to do with it, it is painful, right? The passion of the Christ was this, was this painful thing. Um, and so I think the idea of pain is synonymous with love, which maybe is a hard pill to swallow. But if you truly love someone, you have also hurt for that person. You have hurt with that person. You've hurt um, because of that person. Um, and that doesn't mean that your love is, is any less effectual. Um, it, it, it simply means this is part of the deal. This is part of the package, the process. Um, and so I think that a, anytime you, you paint over pain, anytime you ignore it, anytime you go, well, they ignore someone's, even someone's experience of pain. Um, you're, you're doing away with any type of compassion that you can have. Um, it is empathizing with that person that will then cause you pain for the pain that they feel. And instead of painting it over, now that is where compassion begins to move me from saying, again, I love you, to showing I love you. Why? Well, because I know you're in pain and I know what that feels like and I know what I would want someone to do for me. Um, And so I'd say, yeah, there's definitely an element of if you paint over pain, you cannot and you, you probably will not show compassion because I think it's part of the deal. And that's, that can be a whole, you know, it's a whole philosophical discussion on okay. suffering and, and goodness and God. And, and, and I love having that conversation as well. Uh, and then to your point on social media, um, I think that's a, that's a more, that's a more nuanced question. I think of knowing where people stand um, because I think people can stand 
um, in two places at one time. Uh, I don't, I don't think it's always as binary as we like to make it out to be. Um, whereas, you know, if you vote for this person, you're all bad and I'm all good because I didn't. Um, I think, uh, again, knowing where people stand tends to, uh, can take us and divide us right down the middle because we, we make things binary. It cannot be uh, nuanced. I think complexity is hard for people. I think nuance is hard for people. I think um, people, and, and you mentioned this earlier, this idea of safety is in, I know who are my people and I know who are not my people and I'm safe, right? Uh, my wife and I have been taking this quarantine time. So we can't go out to movies. So we got an HBO uh, subscription and we started watching Game of Thrones, right? And there's there's all this stuff in there, but it's it's like, whose tribe am I in? We have to be all against the, that tribe over there. And then we got to get more people to be a, who are for us to be against them and violence and bloodshed ensues. Um, I'm still early on, so don't tell me any spoilers. Um, but I think that that tends to happen um, because someone can say, yes, I voted for X person. And then it floods our mind with stereotypes and uh, presuppositions and assumptions about them. And we have this expectation. And I found that most people that when you sit down and have a conversation, uh, nuance, and, and even in the political religious realm, like you're saying over the table, we, we find this at pub theology all the time. Um, when you have those conversations, it, most people aren't the things that we think they are based on knowing that one fact about them um, or knowing, you know, certain facts about them. So I think it can be, um, certain things are more nuanced than we want them to be. I think people want them to be more simple so that, um, I think as you mentioned, safety, right? <laughs> I don't want to be afraid or at least I know who to fear uh, and I can blame them for all my problems. Uh, that's, that's kind of a, a good, good way to frame it. I, I have someone to blame for what's wrong. Yeah. And it also, I think, can cause people to remove themselves from responsibility. They don't, mm. they don't feel they have enough power or enough uh, weight to actually impact change. And so they don't try. And then there's the other component of people just typically don't like change. And how do we navigate a world that has completely turned upside down with a political system that is unlike anything we've ever seen, with a president unlike anything we've ever seen, and with access to information unlike any other time in history. Yes. Yet we're stuck in our homes. <laughs> and, so, they, and things aren't just changing. They're changing because things have always changed, right? That's been the constant change. They're changing at a, at a pace like never before. Uh, I just think about someone who's, who's uh, 80 years old and what they have seen. You know, I think of my, I remember my grandfather telling me the first time he saw a plane, an airplane fly overhead. And then all the way to he was uh, FaceTiming on his phone before he died, right? Like, like, the technology and how more, much more rapidly that picked up. And, and so I think you're right. Like the, the changes is people already fear that. And then when it's coming at you faster, when the thing that you fear seems to be overtaking you faster than you can even adapt uh, again, there, there's some very real fear and concern. And 
I put it, I put it this way and everyone, you know, people want to, again, classify things as, as either, or people are either oppressed or they're the oppressor. They can't somehow be both. Right. Uh, and, and, um, and I, I, I've tried to take this on in, in, I think in a conversation on compassion, this certainly, um, this certainly applies to this conversation, especially in the, in the political realm and maybe even in the religious realm, which tends to, to, you know, how can people who follow Jesus claim love, you know, support certain things. And that's on either side of a political party or whatever. Um, I tend to, to think this, I think the, a complete view of compassion and love and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but as, as I'm seeing it and as I'm growing, what, what I'm trying to do in practice is this justice for the oppressed and mercy for the oppressor. Like what if, what if both of those things can happen at the same time? Justice, justice for, for the, the oppressed, oppressed and mercy for the oppressor. Yeah. What does justice mean to you? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's another one. Um, so justice is, is the wrong, the wrong is made right as, as far as it can be. Um, and people have different ideas on uh, what is a what is justice, right? Like in particular situations, you know, um, I love the I love the conversation honestly around reparations um, for for the African American community, um, simply because that is uh, a justice for the oppressed uh, type of conversation. Um, but also, I think within that again, nuance can also be a conversation around mercy for the oppressor, right? Like, like like the idea of can something be made right without also now damaging another person, right? Can, can we show justice and mercy? And, and it's one of the things, you know, I was listening to a podcast recently that someone said they were talking with a constitutional lawyer and they were asking them a bunch of questions. And, and he pointed out the things in the constitution that are inherently um, complex, complex, like, because they seem at odds with each other. Um, and like individual liberty and and justice and things like that all seem at odds with each other at times. And he kind of points out a few things like that. And I think mercy and justice seem at odds because mercy is the kindness that this person doesn't get what they deserve for the wrongdoing that they did. And, and forgiveness kind of comes along with that, where that person doesn't have to pay. But then there's still justice for this other person, right? And so how do we have justice and mercy at the same time? And, and you know, the Bible talks about this as the very core nature of an, a, a God whose love is unfailing. It comes with, you know, mercy and justice rolling down like a, a river rolling down a mountain. And my goodness, what if we could get there? Right? What if we could be so compassionate and so humble that we creatively find out ways to get there. I, and I think it takes creativity because I don't think the answers are always clear. Um, but yeah, I think, I think when it comes to those kind of conversations back to just the, the political aspect and, and knowing where people stand and things like that. And I, I think there's a real complexity there. And sometimes we want to stereotype people. And I think I don't need to know where you stand on every issue that matters to me for me to love you. Yeah, I, I think that's huge. The I don't I don't have to I don't even have to know where you stand to love you. You know that it doesn't matter. Love my love for you isn't dependent on on you. <laughs> really, we're right. So well, at that point, you're talking about an unconditional love, right? Yeah. That that sounds amazing, 
right? That we would welcome in our life because we know ourselves. Um, but man, that's tough, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it's hard. And yeah. all, as a pastor, you deal with literally the problems of people like that's your job. And so how do you as a pastor avoid or get through or overcome compassion fatigue? And how do you stay healthy yourself when there is so much trauma, especially in this time? Yeah, so the, I definitely have days where I feel it uh, more than others. I feel people's hurt um, more than others. I, I have to... So there's certain practices, and right now it's hard to be doing them because uh, part of it is finding healthy routines, and uh, you know things are just thrown off. My my healthy routine is not as routine as it as it used to be, and I'm definitely feeling the hurt of some people. Just so many people that have lost their jobs or are furloughed, or and they're not feeling it right now, but they're about to. And we as a, as a church, as an organization are, are preparing for and uh, financially working with even partners and things like that. And how can we help these people when this, when this hits and help our community when this hits, when people start really feeling the financial strain. So yeah, there, I definitely have those moments. And I would say routine is what I normally do. I find a healthy routine. I have a personal retreat once a month that I take where it is um, selfishly all about me. I'll eat lunch by myself at a place that I really enjoy. I will will um, listen to music. I will read the books I'm looking at. I will examine my life, my life plan. Um, how am I doing in my relational accounts uh, with, with God, my, my spouse, my, uh, my kids, myself, right? My relationship to myself and my passion and, and calling. And, um, and then usually every year I try and take uh, one or two weekends where I'm doing that at, at a, a, a greater level. Um, and then also a ton of drinking. Just kidding. No, um, <laughs> I uh, no. I, I well, theology, right? Right. Yeah. There you go. Uh, you know, I also uh, try and find. Um, you know, I don't. I don't love the the modern day concepts of Sabbath. You know, I think they can become very religious and uh, legalistic and and um, things like that. But you know, I do try and. And one of the things that was really great for me. Um, was Saturday had become this family day where I, I quit the side hustle job that I was doing that was providing some extra money for my family and just said, hey, listen, we'll just live on less. Um, cutting that job off because Saturdays I need to be with my family. I need, it was the only day my wife was going to school and to work. It was the only day that she didn't have one of those two things going on. And when we came into the new year and we just said, all right, we're protecting Saturdays. Uh, and she and I both just said, this is our day where we go, you know, take the kids to ice skating lessons or dance class. And then we just spend the day together and it doesn't matter what we're doing. We just, we just do it together. And if we go someplace uh, to be with people, but it's together mm-hmm. and there's no demands on us um, other than the ones that, that we place on ourselves, right. Uh, the things that we want to do. Uh, and that was very healthy. Uh, even turning my phone off, putting it on, you know, silent, just using it as a, you know, uh, watch basically I don't wear a watch so having you know, the time or whatever and um so those are some very healthy practices current currently um you know I find myself taking extra long uh showers and the kids and you know just kind of leave daddy alone let him focus you know I, I kind of spend time meditating um in that time and, and uh working on a lot of the things that are going on and um 
Yeah. So I say that's, that's probably some of the practices and the things that I do. Um, Is there one particular practice you could recommend to our listening audience? Because of course, a lot of people that are interested in this type of content are the light workers, the helpers, the healers. So is there something that you could recommend for them specifically to start doing this week? Yeah. Um, uh, calendar a personal retreat day and don't ever let that move. So is the idea of I'm having, um, I'm having a four hour, I'm having an eight hour, whatever meeting with the most important person that I can that day. And that's myself. <laughs> like, uh, and so what I found is that people who, who try to institute this practice and people that I've even coached with it, they will always find something to do in that space. And, and what my coach, when I was, um, had started this practice and he was a wonderful man, you know, in his seventies, a ton of wisdom. He said, you put it in and you don't move it. Nothing gets scheduled on top of this. And you figure out a rhythm, you figure out a way to make this day for you. And I think, you know, I think of our partners, like the, um, our nonprofit partners that the church partners with and, and the work that they do. And, uh, you know, if I was talking to them, having this conversation, I would say, what, what is it? You know, is it the third Wednesday of every month or whatever is your unflinching, uh, schedule. It's in the calendar. You're having a con you're having a, a day with the most important person you can that day. And that's yourself. Um, and I think that practice was really, that was a huge, huge step in me getting very healthy, um, and, um, softening my edges, <laughs> uh, when, when they had become, you know, hardened. Yeah. So what you're saying is, is have compassion for yourself, really? Certainly. Yeah, certainly. Like be compelled to do good for yourself, right? You can say, you can talk about self-love and, and, you know, self-love and, and all that kind of stuff, but what are you actually doing to show that love to yourself? And, and, and my wife does the same practice. She, so she, she has a day of the month and I have a day of the month that that's what we do. And, and we just, we just work with each other to make that those days happen. Um, but we can talk a lot about self-love and, and how do you, how do you achieve like self-love and self-care without being selfish? And I think, I think that, that the key to that is what you're talking about. The people that care about this stuff are the ones who are already living selfless <laughs> a, a lot, right? They're already the ones out there pouring their heart out for people. And uh, they need to um, pour their heart out for themselves a little bit and see that my, my wife and kids are better after my personal retreat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I'm a better husband. I'm a better dad. I'm a better caretaker, um, partner, whatever you want to call it um, in those right. moments. That makes absolute sense. And I think that it does start with, with yourself. Whitney Houston covered a song that I love, The Greatest Love of All. And she says, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all because it is really true that you have to be a whole person in order to truly, genuinely care for others. Absolutely. So as we kind of wrap up, I do want to talk about your community for just a second. Okay. But um, since we're kind of on this compassionate practice moment, every show we do a hashtag something as a compassionate practice. So what is something that we could kind of hashtag as an action step for people to do for others this week? Um, so an outward uh, hashtag, like for a compassionate practice to other people, that's not not to ourselves, right? Yes. I'm sorry. Yep. I'm no, you got it. Question. You got it. So something compassionate we can do for others. Oh, okay. Especially um, if we're kind of confined at homes right now. 
Yeah. Uh, you know what? So one of the things that we're actually doing as a community of faith right now is we just sent out a mass thing of cards um, to people to tell them that they are loved and that we're praying for them in this moment. We were there with them. Um, so I would, you know, I'm calling it the, the hashtag love loudly card campaign. And we're going to follow it up with providing people cards that they can then fill out and send to people. Um, so people who've received cards can then turn them. So I think uh, sometimes like a hashtag card campaign uh, would be That's a wonderful right way. Yeah. Hashtag card campaign. So everyone this week, when you send out your card, tweet, Instagram, Facebook, hashtag card campaign, and of course, hashtag compassionate LV as well. So Jeremy, I am so thankful you had time to, to fit me in for this podcast and for us just to have a chance to reconnect and mm -hmm. spend time chatting about things we talk about. Uh, <laughs> the last thing I do want to make sure we get in, though, is downtown faith. Just give me a summary of what that is, how people can connect with you there, and why they should show up. Yeah, uh, so we are, um, our vision is simply this. We want to create space to discuss life and faith here in downtown Las Vegas. Um, we are hyper-focused on this community. We obviously welcome people from all over the city uh, and all over the country in our in our Zoom meetings. But um, you know, one of the ways you can connect is going to our website, dclvfaith.com. Uh, we have all kinds of conversations that we've had through podcasts and blogging and our Sunday uh, discussion series. Um, and you can kind of peruse through there. You can find different ways to connect to the conversations we've already had. And if you go to events, uh, you can just click on the link the Zoom link and on 1045 on Sunday mornings, we have our Zoom conversation. And what's great about Zoom technology is it allows us to then break out into groups. And so we have breakout groups that happen. Uh, so you can talk about the subject of the day in a, uh, in a, in a smaller group and it's where um, you voice. So we call it TED Talk meets Table Talk. So I'll do a short presentation about a topic, like our new series uh, we're calling The Cure, uh, Healing an Epidemic of Loneliness. And um, <clears throat> this actually was not planned because of the quarantine and coronavirus. We planned this like six or eight months ago, um, but it just happened to land at this time. And um, and so we, we have you know, we join that conversation and people can actually get a chance to share and share their heart and be known and cared for in that. And uh, so I'd certainly encourage people to connect that way. And then when we're back in person, we meet at, uh, at Ninth Bridge School right here in fabulous downtown Las Vegas. And uh, we meet around tables. And again, it's TED Talk meets Table Talk, creating space to discuss life and faith. And what you have to say matters. What you think about things matters. And we want to hear it. And we, um, we want to know you and care for you. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of what downtown faith is and, um, and why you should join. Cause I think everyone wants to be known and cared for. Absolutely. They want to be known and cared for, and you are doing that for our city and we are grateful. Um, there is hope, there is light and you are a great source of it. So thank you for that. In a word or two, a summary sentence, and I know that's hard for a pastor, right? <laughs> but in just a sentence or two, how are you personally embodying compassion here in Las Vegas and for the world at large? Uh, you know, personally, what, what, I've, what I've come to is this. Paying attention to that compelling uh, move to show love. And that when it's there, acting on it immediately. 
that is is how I'm embodying it. And and that that can grow and be a big thing, but ultimately as a person, as an individual, feeling paying attention to the compulsion to show love and not letting it pass and move on, but acting on it immediately. Thank you. We'll leave it right there. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. This episode is made possible by the Jameson Foundation in partnership with the Moonridge Group. There are so many amazing things happening and so many people have inspirational stories to share. So if you are one of those people, this is your platform. Email me at will at winningwithwill.com. Use the subject line Compassionate LV or Compassionate Las Vegas and let me know your story. I'd love to have you on the show or to feature your story in a future episode. Be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, leave a five-star review. Your review and rating helps others to find this podcast and helps to further the mission to make the world a more compassionate place. I also want you to share your practices for compassion. Today, Jeremy shared the importance of taking a day for yourself each and every month. We want to share what you are doing, so we would love for you to include your compassionate practice tip with your five-star review. Love and compassion aren't luxuries, they are necessities. Live the golden rule and treat others the way you would want to be treated. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we will make the world a more compassionate place. This has been Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker, and I will talk with you again on the next episode.